the word of God. Let's hear now with attention and care. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless or powerless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your perfect word. We thank you for your kindness that you have chosen not only to make and sustain all things by your powerful word, but that your word is a way that you reveal yourself to us. It is the way that you have chosen to make yourself known to your people throughout the ages, and by extension, known to those who witness the lives of your people. We thank you for the people throughout the ages, the, the faithful saints who have actually given their lives for your word. Many that we perhaps don't even know about. Men like William Tyndale, who were massacred and murdered for translating this book we call the Bible into English so that millions would come to know eternal life through Jesus Christ. May we have the same resolve as people who have gone before us to stand on your truth in a world that is filled with a mass of lies and deception. May we not be shaped by every voice that is stirring around us, but teach us to prioritize the most important voice that could ever speak into our souls, your voice, your word. May we be renewed in our minds daily through your word, by the Spirit, 
and be transformed by that so that we could understand your will, live lives that are pleasing to you, and live lives of spiritual worship in everything we do that is extending even beyond services like this. Help us to see that our lives collectively should be encompassed by truth and, and worship and spirit and truth. So shape us now. Even in this time, we, we ask that you would shape us by your word. We thank you that you have committed yourself to doing this for those who trust in Christ. You have called the, the church, the, the bride of Christ. You have made it so that he is our bridegroom and he is a faithful he is a faithful groom to his bride. We thank you for his faithfulness. And we ask that as we look in this passage and other passages today, that what we would see is a little bit more about who he is and what he has done and how we should understand ourselves as the church. And if there are any here today that are not yet believers, would you use your word even now to open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he can do for them, even right now, today, and for all eternity. And so we ask that you would magnify him and his name through this sermon, through the communion that we will partake in, prepare our hearts and minds to participate in that too. And for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And we are about halfway through chapter 17. But before I say anything else about this passage we just read, I want to invite you to turn with me back to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, just to look at verse 18, where we see the, the first time ever in the New Testament, and one of the only times where the word church is actually used. And it's firstly used in this way by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. After what's known as the Great Confession, you could call this the first confession of faith. And throughout the ages, the church has had different confessions of faith. Um, if you look in the back of our hymnal, you'll see at least two. You'll see things like the Apostles' Creed, and you'll see the Westminster Shorter Catechism, perhaps, or the Shorter Catechism, Westminster Con Confession of Faith, things like that. And what that is, is the church is trying to condense a whole system, a whole number of truths that the Bible teaches about the gospel, about what the Christian faith is. And the reason that they got a little bit broader since Peter made this confession is because, again, the schemes of the devil have brought confusion in. And it's against the lies and confusion that we as the church have to make sure that we are shaping our thinking and our ideas and our worship by the word of God. But this is a very short summary of what you could call a confession of faith. In Matthew 16, I'll just read from verse 13 down to 20. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And as we had gone through that passage in the following Bible study in the evening service, I pointed out that it wasn't time to start revealing this just yet. But at the end of Matthew's Gospel, he doesn't say to pause on that. He actually says, go now and make disciples of all nations in accordance with this kind of truth. But you notice here he says, I will build my church. And the word there is ecclesia, which is used in at least two main ways. It means gathered ones. Those who are gathered physically together. But it also means called out ones. Ones who have been called out, set apart, and gathered together around something. So you have many different churches in the world today. Some of them are even churches that say we are churches of Jesus Christ. But when you look at the statements of faith and the, the core teachings of some of those churches, you start to realize it's not the same Christ that the true church believes in. And one of the ways that the devil finds his foothold in true churches and in the lives of true churches is when we are afraid to stand up sometimes publicly and make these kinds of distinctions. We cannot be passive or yes men and yes women when it comes to this because when we talk about the church we are talking about a people that have been set apart through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God for the purpose of everlasting worship. This is a very important topic to consider. What is the church? Who is the church? I'll give you one example. You will find churches that have the name the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, i.e. the Mormon Church. If you start to look a little bit into what they believe about Jesus, you realize it is not a true church. It is what you call a cult. Because they deny the true teaching that Jesus himself taught about who he is and how we are saved through him. 
Again, this is not a, a judgment of any personal nature. It's just an assessment that we need to make. Because if you came here one Sunday morning and found out that myself and the elders had decided to let someone else come and preach and another man stood here and started to teach the things that are core essential beliefs of that church, it would behoove you to stand up, take that person by the shoulders if need be, and remove them from this pulpit because it would be blasphemy. In other words, allowing it to continue would be a, a form of what you call syncretism, false worship, trying to somehow blend truth with error, maybe with the best of intentions. And that is the main thing that God actually disciplined His people all throughout the Old Testament for. He called them to be a nation set apart for Himself, to, to worship, to live according to His truth. When, when we read words like, Be holy, for I am holy, primarily He's not talking about purity there, although that's included. He's primarily saying, Be a distinct people, distinguished by my revealed truth. And so we need to be a people of the Word as we think about topics like this. We are the church, which first and foremost is defined by believing the true gospel, the true message about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus will build His church. And when He makes that statement, it is a, a profound promise that we should hold dearly to. When he says he will build his church, he's not talking about the external organizational structures that we see. The nature of the church, first of all, or the identity of the church, is twofold. There's a, a visible church. In other words, we are Bosun Bay Presbyterian Church. Visibly, we can be seen. But in every church, in every age, there are sometimes people who just kind of go along with the flow. And then there are others who are genuine spiritual believers, and you call them the, the invisible church. And when Jesus uses the language here of, I will, he's asserting with a definite article. This is something that is not going to fail. I will build my church. So we may have struggled with friends we know, family we know who've turned away from the faith. And so we might ask the question, has Jesus failed there? And we'd have to answer, no. He's still building His church. He's building His church and those who remain true to the end, as He says in Matthew 24, all who endure to the end will be saved. And we will all lay our crowns before Him on that last moment and come to recognize fully that we are in Him and we are with Him because He is a good shepherd who loses none of His sheep. So let us look again at this passage in Romans. And I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, the identity or the nature of the true church begins with 
believing the true gospel. And there's many passages which we can look at to understand the gospel. But look at the words of Romans 5, 1 through 11. Just, just at the first five verses alone. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just pause there in the first verse alone. Again, Paul always uses this word, therefore, in connection. So let's look at the, the verse that precedes it. He who was delivered, referring to Jesus, was delivered over because of our transgressions or our sin and was raised because of our justification. This word uh, justified or justification is a word that is used over and over by Paul. It's simply a court, courtroom term that, that means to be declared right with God. I don't know all of the struggles that, that all of us here have today. But one thing I do know, as I, I think I mentioned this yesterday, one thing I know for sure is that we all have the same greatest need. And that is to be made right with God. It is because of our nature as, as sinners that this relationship that once existed with God, that Adam and Eve started with, has been broken. And Paul uses these, these words, peace with God, and then again at the end of verse 11, received the reconciliation. And this is referring to the fact that our broken relationship because of sin has been set right in Christ for those who believe. By faith in the works of Christ, we can enter into a restored relationship. To be reconciled to someone, as this text is telling us, being reconciled to God, this implies that none of us by nature is in a right relationship with God. And that is really our greatest problem. And so the question then is, how can I do something about that? What can I do to assist in making this relationship right? Because between each other, if we have an issue, we can do certain things. It doesn't always happen that it works out. Reconciliation is not a guarantee. Reconciliation will not always happen. We can actually have forgiveness and give forgiveness to people who we don't reconcile with. And that is one of the hardships of living in a fallen world. But there's things we can do to help with reconciliation in some of those circumstances. In the circumstance that we find ourselves with this sinful relationship to God now, the only relationship that we have with God outside of being born again, outside of becoming a Christian, believing this true gospel, is a relationship where He is our judge and we are the guilty party. So you notice in verse 10, Paul says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled Shall we be saved by his life? This whole idea of justification, being justified before God, it doesn't just call our need into question, our need to be made right with God. 
But it calls God's own righteousness into question. How do you think about God? We should think about God on his own terms. And he is a righteous God. He's merciful. He's compassionate to many generations. But he also says, and I will not leave the guilty unpunished. If somebody had committed a horrific crime against one of your loved ones and you went into the courtroom and as you're sitting there confident that this is a good judge you know this judge is good in character and so you have peace that the right thing's going to be done and the judge lifts the gavel and then says not guilty you would scream you would feel like screaming wait a minute this person committed this horrific crime against my loved one. They are guilty. The situation here is that all humanity, as Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And as David confesses after he has adulterous relations with Bathsheba and has her husband murdered, when he writes Psalm 51 in repentance, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Meaning, yes, I, I sinned against Uriah. Yes, I sinned against Bathsheba. But I've come to a place where I recognize that my sin is ultimately not just between me and people, but against you. This is the greatest problem in many of our sinful situations in life. We don't recognize that sin in general is an offense to God. And so all the problems that we see in this world, in our own life, are basically fruit and evidence proving that there is an ultimate behind-the-scenes problem. And so as, as one Protestant reformer asked the question, how can holy God, how can a, a sinful man be made right with a holy God? And Paul answers this question very well throughout the book of Romans. But he makes it clear in verse 10 again. He repeats, he, he picks back up on this theme of justification and shows us that God has reconciled us to himself by putting to death his only son. That Jesus comes to this earth and lives the life that we cannot. And after achieving a, a life of sinless perfection, he goes to Calvary's cross and then is crucified and treated as if he committed our sins not by the Romans they didn't know ultimately what God was doing he was treated by the Jews and and by the Romans in unjustly he was wrongly accused and he was the only innocent person who was truly righteous that that, that ever lived He's the only one of us who, who stands outside of that text that says there is no one righteous, no, not one. He is the righteous one. But what takes place on that cross is that God treats Christ behind the scenes, beyond all the gruesome, terrible things that we could see somewhat depicted in movies like Passion of the Christ. Maybe you've watched certain movies about the crucifixion. They don't get to the heart of it. All the things that we feel emotionally watching that, 
doesn't even get close to what Jesus felt. You've got to put all of it together as best as you can in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he was praying to the Father the night before, he said, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. The cup which prophets like Isaiah spoke about long before. The, the cup of God's holy, righteous wrath, which means anger against sin. Righteous indignation and punishment. Jesus, thinking about what this would be like to drink, begins to sweat blood as he's on his knees there, praying, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. The mere thought of what he was about to go through caused him to sweat blood. On the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Under the weight of that wrath and that justice, he was being punished by God for sins that he didn't commit. If you're trusting in him today, you must take this, we must take this personally for your sins, the sins that you and I have committed and will commit. He was receiving the eternal wrath of God, not a temporary wrath. I've, I've mentioned this before. There's a great Christian apologist and hip hop artist named Shailin. And he has a song called The Cross. You can go look it up on YouTube. You take the time, you find one with lyrics, right? It's called The Cross. And he says in his refrain, um, I think that's the right word, the, the, the part of the song you repeat, he says, Forever will I tell that for three hours Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. So forever will I tell for three hours Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. You think about that. Think about the, the magnitude of our sins and the magnitude of His perfection and the, the mercy and the grace of God that Jesus would come to this earth that depends on His hands upholding it and become a, a dependent a person, a dependent part of his own creation from conception onwards. And then find himself as an innocent one hanging there receiving this wrath. Why is it worse for him? Because he is not simply receiving the wrath of God against one man. But an unknown number of men and women and children throughout the ages. Namely whosoever will believe in Him. And God will not require a double payment. I want you to hear this as clearly as I can put it. Christ died for the sins of those who believe. Those who do not believe, you will be found guilty of rejecting God's perfect, eternal Son. And you will pay the full penalty of your sin. But if you will turn to Him in faith, 
If you will repent of your self-confidence, your self-righteousness, your self-trust, your doubt of His ability and goodness to save, you will be set free from your sins and eternally saved, forgiven, made righteous before God. This is what justification means. Paul has been stressing this from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to the end of this chapter. He continues to flesh it out. So he says to these Christians in Rome, and he says to us today who believe, if we have turned from sin and trusted in Christ, the deal is done. You see what it says there? Having been justified or if you're using one of the, the Pew Bibles, maybe it says something different. But it doesn't matter what translation, whether it says, since we have been justified or having been justified, every true translation is making the same point. The work is complete. That is why he said on the cross, it is finished. Because for whoever comes to him, we enter. Look at verse 2. Not only do we have peace with God from being justified, being declared righteous because Jesus was, was punished for our unrighteousness. And the, the proof, as, as verse 25 of chapter 4 says, and raised for our justification. Meaning for the purpose of God being able to declare us righteous, He not only was put to death, but the Father raised Him up to say, yes, it is finished if you come to Him. And so therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is related to that old Hebrew word, shalom. It doesn't just mean, have a good day. It speaks of a wholeness, a wellness, even in a sense, prosperity, but don't run with that too far. Being put back into a healthy, whole relationship with God. He says, all this has been done through what? Something in my hands I bring? No. It's not. The old hymn writer got it right. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We're justified by faith. The reason God has set things up this way is because the only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. Period. Anything we try to add to Jesus' works is filthy rags. But He is the righteous one who if we trust in Him, we have peace with God now. You see the, the tenses again? Having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we Stand. You see? The beginning of this kind of saving grace comes through faith. And it's, it's a new position that we stand in. Grace is not just about our forgiveness, but about power, about a new life, about a new realm of living that we're actually in. And again, every, every verse in these first five verses has at least two we or our or us, almost every verse. If you read through these five verses, no matter what translation you're using, you'll see at least 10 to 12 times that Paul uses the words we, us, our. Because 
He's talking about the church. He's never met these Christians in Rome, at least not yet. We don't think he ever did meet them based on his final letter to Timothy. But Paul knew what they needed to know. Paul knew what types of false teaching was going to come in. Paul knew that there was going to be certain people who came in and said, salvation is not by grace through faith in Christ alone. No, you have to also to be justified, which you, which you have to wait till the end of your life to hear. You, you have to also make, it, make sure you stay close enough to that narrow path. Then at the end of your life, you can be certain. Paul says, no, brothers and sisters, if you have faith, you have been justified. In other words, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. We don't want to have false assurance, but when we trust in the promises of God and the work of Christ, we have this blessed assurance. But also, Paul says, listen, the, the, the evidence that these things are true is how we deal with the circumstances in life that God allows us to go through. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Some pithy saying like that. I've heard it a few times. Some of these sayings are useful, but they sometimes are dismissive because they don't take the time to flesh out what we're thinking about. But it's true. All throughout the history of God's people, He Himself has allowed them to be tested and, and, and refined through this testing. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 2. We exult in the hope of the glory of God, referring to the future glory and glorification that believers have guaranteed. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations or not only so but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance now don't twist this there's an insensitive foolish way that sometimes maybe well-intended people speak about suffering paul is not saying be happy that you suffer he's not saying we rejoice about our sufferings He's not saying, yay, I have cancer. Praise the Lord. There's nothing spiritual about that. But what he's saying is, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of deaths and suffering that we all have to deal with in this life, we can look beyond those things to a world without end where Christ will Make all things new. And as Revelation says, wipe away every tear. There will be no more crying. No more dying. And we begin to taste that now. Because now, through faith, we have peace with God. And you notice, he takes the devil's worst attacks and turns them into his own personal amendments, if you will. Not the kind of amendments you'll see made to certain laws today. Not all amendments are good, we know that. But adjustments, amendments to our character. Tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. You see, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us.
when we think about the church, we are a people who are in this new covenant relationship, which is symbolized by the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake in soon. One of the promises that was long foretold by Ezekiel and Jeremiah about the new covenant was that God would take the hearts of stone of His people that would be in the new covenant. He would crush them down in love. He would give them a heart of flesh. He would take their hard-heartedness and soften it to be sensitive to the things of God. How so? By putting His own Spirit within them. And do you notice what he says about the Holy Spirit? There's the Father in this text. There's the Son in this text. And look at what he says in verse 5. Through the Holy Spirit, who, or but some translations say, by whom? Referring to the Holy Spirit, not as a force, but as a person. Emmanuel is God with us. Christ fulfills that. But after the ascension, one of the great concerns of his disciples was, Lord, you're going away. And he says, no, it's going to be better. Because I'm going to send one who won't just be with you externally, so that only a few people at some location have the presence of God, but in an even more powerful, life-changing way. I and the Father, we will send the Holy Spirit. And he says, when he comes, he will do certain things, and he will be in you. And God doesn't take his Holy Spirit back. When He places His Holy Spirit in a believer, He gives us these great and precious promises that we have here in passages like this so that we will persevere. And Christian, maybe you're listening to me and thinking, you know, I, I, I have turned away at some point in, in some way. I have I've not dealt with my suffering and my tribulation well. I haven't been good at how I respond to this this life so often that's that's natural that's okay are you listening right now is your heart encouraged by the faithfulness of God do you see that he is committed to his people in this text and in these truths we're considering now when you consider the grand scheme of your life and you see how God has taken care of you, is it not evident how much He loves us? Just coming back to the greatest evil that ever took place in human history. The greatest injustice which took place over 2,000 years ago on that old rugged cross. And God took that. And at the hands of wicked men, Jesus was crucified. But through their evil, God meant it for good. It's like the end of Joseph's life when his brothers realized, uh-oh, daddy's gone. He can't protect us anymore. We sinned against our brother. We sold him out good as dead. And here we are before him as the king of Egypt now. And they start to make up this story. We don't know if it's actually true or not. Uh, well, Joseph, father said to make sure to take care of us. And Joseph kind of stops him and says, listen, am I in the place of God? This is what a godly 
character looks like on the backside of suffering. This is what we want to aspire to. Am I in the place of God? I know that you meant it for evil. But something else, there was another will at work there. God meant it for good. You can read these words in the last chapter of Genesis. And this summarizes the hand of God providentially working throughout the ages and most powerfully seen in the cross. The world and Satan meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. So that we who trust in Him are brought back into this relationship, reconciled through the death of Christ. And so Paul says, how much more shall we be saved by His life? By this ongoing faith connection and communion and union with Him. How much more power shall we receive and faithfulness will we get from His living and us being in Him? As He sits now at the right hand of God, He hasn't stopped working for us. He's still looking down upon us with love and and interceding as a great high priest. Even if you were just thinking about my question and you're saying to yourself, I'm still not responding the way I should to my life circumstances. And you know what? I don't know if I feel like I want to. Just hear me saying this again. If you believe in this gospel... He can change that attitude. He can bring you to where you need to be. Look up. Metaphorically speaking. We need to be a people who don't just look around. Did you hear what happened on CNN? Did you hear what happened on Fox? Did you? Well, obviously those are interpretations, right? Did you hear what, what happened in Israel? Don't just look ahead or around you. Look up. And the way that a Christian looks up is by looking down into the word of God God has given us his word to save us to justify us to sanctify us and one day to glorify us and Paul makes this this great promise or doesn't make it he grants us the evidence of this promise in a passage like Romans 8 where he says this therefore There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, these are the two evidences. These are the two, rather, positions. Every human being finds himself either in Christ Jesus or in Adam. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, you got some things right, but you need to be born again. We need to be born again. And if we are in Christ We have no condemnation. We have moved from the realm of righteous condemnation to no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So I'll close with these these words. Before I read this again, just remember that we, we as the church, this is our collective identity. And the way that we we stay firmly rooted and grounded in these truths and grow as we should together is by doing what we're doing right now. We were never intended as the church to be lone rangers. We need each other. We need this kind of gathering, these services. 
We need to take the Lord's Supper together to be reminded of His death. But let's hear these words before I close. What, the, what then shall we say in verse 31? What, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we, fa we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> We'll pick this up more this evening. But for now, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we, we do thank you that you have committed yourself to keeping your promises, your covenant promises that you made first and foremost in your Son, even before time began, that you would make a people through him who would never be separated from the love of God. Not because we deserve your love, but because you have chosen to be kind, to be gracious, and to be ever faithful to us. Forgive us when we don't see your faithfulness, or don't want to see it, perhaps. Forgive us when we get so distracted by everything that's going on in this world that we... We fail to be moved and molded by you and your truth. Help us, please, in this increasingly busy world and, and lives that we have. Help us to make time to look up into the face of Jesus Christ by looking down into his holy word, into your wonderful words of life. And we thank you that we can stand firm on your promises. Help us to do that today. If someone is listening who hasn't yet believed in this gospel, help them to see both their sin and their need for the Savior, but also just how mighty and merciful He is to save, and just how perfect His salvation is. Help them to see that Christ has called us who are weary and heavy laden to find rest for our souls in Him. And that He will not only forgive, but He will empower and He will keep us to the end. Lord Jesus, we, we thank You and we praise You for this 
commitment. Help us to be better committed to you in our own lives and as a church so that we can be the kind of church, the kind of witness to the world that you've called us to be in both the way we live and through the proclamation of the gospel, not just on Sunday mornings, but in our homes, in our offices, at our businesses, in our friendships, our families. Help us to be a people of the gospel, of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Like